Blog Talk Radio. everyone. Thank you for joining us tonight on Stop News Now. We are on scan number 3131. What a wonderful number. Uh, if you'd like to be a part of the panel tonight, please feel free to give us a call on the guest line. At, the number is 646-595-2118. Again, that number is 646-595-2118. I'm your host tonight. My name is Dr. Nancy, and I'm with my wonderful co-host, Ms. Kim. Would you introduce yourself? Nope. Thank you, Dr. Nancy. Yeah, nice. Yes. Nice to be here this evening. I'm Kim Lincoln. Thank you. All right, and we we're really looking forward to speaking to our guest tonight. His name his name is Dr. Um, Mr. Bob Eden. Like we're calling it into existence. All right, and uh, and we're going to start by reading the mission statement tonight. Okay. We have a single purpose at NASCA to address issues related to childhood abuse and trauma, including sexual assault, violent or physical abuse, emotional traumas, and neglect. And we do so with only two goals. One educating the public, especially as related to helping society get over its taboo of discussing childhood sexual abuse, presenting facts showing child abuse to be a pandemic worldwide problem that affects everyone, and two, offering hope and healing through numerous paths, providing many services to adult survivors of child abuse and information for anyone interested in the many issues involving prevention, intervention, and recovery. Again, tonight's show is scan number 3131, and we are on Stop Child Abuse Now. The number to call in is 646-595-2118. Again, that number is 646-595-2118. Ms. Kim, would you mind doing the introduction for our guest, Mr. Bob? Ms. Mm-hmm. Kim? Okay. All right. 
I'm not sure if Ms. Kim could hear me, uh, but I will read the bio of our wonderful guest, Mr. Bob. Tonight's special guest is Bob Eden from Airlie Beach, Queensland, Australia, a survivor who shares his story in his own descriptive, articulate words. During his own journey with depression, which began in 1984, he developed a drug-free protocol for recovering from depression. Based on the reevaluation counseling process in which I trained in the 90s, I found a way through by going within and listening to my heart and body. No special tools or books are required. There is nothing to buy, for everyone has their own intimate healing tools, and my role is to help people find them. He says, after more than 20 years of fighting depression, psychologists, psychiatrists, and many cycles of medication, one simple personal insight brought me home. To all those beautiful people who have suffered from depression, I say thank you. Simply thank you for doing such a wonderful job. Bob explains his childhood trauma. Mom was prone to violent outbursts of rage. So I got the crab beaten out of me for many years. The message he got was he does not love. I'm sorry. The message he got was she does not love me. He goes on. Dad was a mythical being who was always at work. So the message I got was dad never spends any time with me. Therefore, he does not love me. Bob became a people pleaser and totally abandoned his needs. Later, he took a 12-step course for adult children of absent parents, which was helpful. Bob, I'm sorry, John Bradshaw's work on the inner child and family of origin opened the floodgates for me, Bob says. I realized that I am the only expert on my life. Bob continues, for me, we are all victims of victims. And if you don't have it back, and if you don't hand it back, you pass it on. Time to break this multi-generational cycle of abuse. Wow, that was beautiful. I'm really looking forward. We're really looking forward to hearing uh, your story and testimony. Mr. Bob, thank you for joining us tonight. Well, it's it's a pleasure, and I'm just so grateful um, to have a, another opportunity to get my message out there that um, there is and <laughs> during my presentation which um, uh, I've prepared I will be dropping a few bombs so my presentation I've um, set up to be in about three parts um, so the first part will be where I am now, how I drive my life, what my life looks like, and a little bit of like how I got here and my backstory uh, from the beginning of my uh, dance with depression in 1984. And then I'll take a break from that. That's part one. And then go to questions. Um, from, and I would prefer questions first from the people that call in because, you know, 
<laughs> it's costing them. And, um, and for me, everybody holds a piece of the puzzle. So we'll have a question period after part one. And then I would like to go into part two, which is the tools and tricks and procedures that I discovered on my journey from uh, trauma and despair to contentment. And then again, after that, we can have another Q&A session. And then the third part is where I put the talking stick down and we just have a like an open slather. So for the first two parts, I would ask anybody listening to... Um, I'll be using the talking stick. So what I would ask for anybody listening, please, if you're, you know, if you're concerned with depression and, you know, you, you're in that horrible place that I spent 20 years in, please call in and um, ask your questions or even share a little bit of your story. Um, and the other thing, when I start part one, and pick up a talking stick, I don't write a script. So what's coming through me is coming through my own intuitive flow. So please don't interrupt. If what I share brings up questions for you, then please take a note of those questions, and I will answer them in the Q&A uh, sessions. So, yeah, that's about it. Um, and... Above all, I am here coming from a space of love. And also, I am here to have fun. Because for me, that's what humanity is here on the planet to do. To have a fun-filled, joyful life. And I do. <coughs> so, with the host's permission... I would like to take up the talking stick. Is that okay with you, lovely ladies? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. This is your time, and we are here to help support you to get your story out the best way you can. Yes, you may. Oh, yeah. Okay, I'll pick up the talking stick now. But the other thing I've noticed is that... How can I put it? When I'm sharing... Um, please don't go, uh-huh, uh, okay, <laughs> you know, please be silent, because those little, those little things are like, they break my flow, so I'm not telling you what to do, I'm asking you for what I need to stay in the flow, and that, that's really important. Um, so, okay, the first part, and I'll pick up the talking stick, It's a heavy stick. Right. Where am I now? Ah. Actually, my life is absolutely magnificent. I'm, uh, I'll be turning 71 this year, and I reckon my real life began about, oh, 11 years ago. okay it's just the Australian time delay yeah so where am I now what drives my life How, what does my life feel like to me well uh, 
my life operates under two basic principles. This is how I operate my life. And the first principle is the KISS principle. Keep it simple, sovereign. I know I've changed it. It used to be keep it simple, stupid. But I've come to realize in my own journey that the words I use create my reality. The words that I use are the spells that I cast. So I've twisted the KISS principle to be keep it simple, sovereign. And then the second principle that my, I run my life through is the SUE principle, S-U-E. All are sovereign, unique, and equal. And for me, everything else just flows from that. And those two principles abide under the umbrella of integrity. Because without personal integrity, None of the magic that I experience now could have ever happened. Because without personal integrity, if I can lie to myself, I can lie to anybody else. And so my life is really simple now. And there is only one law for me, and that's do no harm. And I've only got one right, and that is the right of self-determination so that's how simple my life is and I've come to realize (laughs) that my body is so much smarter than me my body always knows what it needs you know and it's always sending me messages and all I have to do is listen and obey And the result of not listening to my body was, let's see, yeah, in 1984 when I had my first panic attack, I'd been ignoring my body messages for, what, 32 years? And that's why my body just went slap and I had my first panic attack. And what I've come to realize with my real eyes Hey folks, I've got an amazing intellect. You know, my IQ is 150. Einstein was 160. Go figure. And I spent over 20 years trying to think my way out of this depression thing, you know. And, and my intellect was beetling away, beetling away, you know, and it kept coming up with all these complicated answers and feeling really good about itself. But you just, <laughs> it was just getting nowhere. I was locked in the trap of my own intellect. And it was not until I learned how to silence my mind that I could break free from the trap of it, the intellect and then sit centered quietly within my body and listen to my heart just what I've discovered is that the mind is always looking for answers but the heart already knows oh 
and um, I want to interpose a little caveat here. Um, I never give advice because unsolicited advice is abuse and we're all equal. So who am I to give people advice? You know? All I can ever do is share my own journey, my own story, which is my witnessed testimony. You know? And so that's sacred. Nobody can gainsay my life experience. And that's where I get my power from. And uh, this is such a, for me, this is such a beautiful time to be alive because uh, the minds predicted that um, we would enter the age of integrity on the 21st of December 2012. And when I look around the world, that's what I see. More and more people are finding their heart and finding the courage to question everything and develop their own truth. And that's what's happening for me now. And it's, it's, it's such a beautiful experience. But keep it simple, sovereign. You know? If ever my life gets complicated, I, I know that my, my mind has jumped back into the driving seat. So I just reach in, grab my mind from behind the steering wheel, throw it in the trunk, and put my heart back in the driving seat of my life, and my life becomes simple again. I am here as a spiritual being, having a human physical experience. And because of that, I do not have to do anything to justify my existence on this beautiful planet Earth. Because just by being, I am doing enough for that. Well, <laughs> I think that's about it for um, where I am now. Um, a quick, quick relapse back into my past. Uh, 1984. I was born in 52. Um, very premature. Caesarean birth. I was about two pounds when I was born. Uh, and I wasn't expected to survive, but I did. I'm a survivor. And actually, I was, I was delivered by the, the Queen's own surgeon. That's, there's the thing, eh? Yeah. And so... I went through childhood, which I thought was normal. Mum was um, just like living with a volcano. She would just explode. Oh, and so whether I'd been good or bad, if I was in range, I got the shit kicked out of me. And so the message I got from Mum was, Mum's always beaten me, therefore she does not love me. Therefore, I'm unlovable, and it's all my fault. So the two lessons I got from Mum was, it's all my fault, I'm to blame, and the world's a dangerous place because I'm always getting beaten. And then, um, oh, sorry about that. 
And then the message I got from Dad, Dad was a mythical creature. He, um, he was doing what Dad's did back then. He was bringing home the bacon, but he never spent any time with me. And so the message I got from Dad was, Dad doesn't spend any time with me, therefore he does not love me, therefore I'm unlovable, and it's all my fault. And so, <laughs> you know, and also, in that era, that was the era of spare the rod and spoil the child, and um, children should be seen and not heard, so, ah, oh, I was up against the eight balls from, from day one. being resilient and I just thought my childhood was normal it wasn't until later that um, I realized that no you know as a child I deserved to be loved respected supported guided and cherished but through my own journey And thanks to John Bradshaw's work, I was able to reconcile the hate I had with, for my mother by asking her to share her story. And when she shared her story, I realized that, yes, my mum was doing her very, very best, but all she could do was dump on me what got dumped on her. And so by telling her my story and getting her response, I was able to move from God, I hate you, Mum, you're always beating me, through understanding her story, back to a place of love. And writing that letter to Mum, telling her my story, was probably the hardest thing I ever did. But it was so liberating. So, looking at the clock, I think that's uh, probably enough for part one and so I would put the talking stick down and lovingly invite any questions from callers or hosts but I prefer to take callers first thank you Hi, Bob. This is Kim. Hello, Thank darling. you for sharing all of that. Hello. Thank you for sharing all that. I um, immediately knew what you were talking about when you picked up your talking stick because I used to do support groups with children and I had a talking stick made. And um, so I just love that, that vision of you have a talking stick and it's your time. <laughs> Um, I'm just, I'm so sorry that you have to go through all of that. I, you know, it just breaks my heart. We're here, you know, sharing other people's stories. And, um, and so we kind of know what's coming, that it was kind of abuse, some kind of abuse that it happened. But whenever you hear it, it always kind of impacts you a little bit harder when you hear the true story. So I'm sorry that you just didn't feel loved by your mom. I, but that's I okay. can relate to that's that okay, to Kim. some degree. Yeah, go ahead. That's okay, Kim. Because the way I look at it is yeah. every step I've ever taken in my life, however painful, 
has brought me here to this magnificent place of personal contentment. So I had to go through the fire to rise from the ashes. Yeah, absolutely. I wonder the same thing. I wonder, you know, what would have happened if I would have been taken away from my parents and put in foster care? I mean, I don't know if I would have been the same person that I am. You know, that's just a a tiny bit of my story. Um, Yeah, it does. It it molds you and makes you who you are. And and I just think that's wonderful that you've done all this work and you have been able to come to this place. And thank you. Do we have any callers? We have a yes, caller. Um, so we have left. Yeah, go ahead. Good. Yippee! <laughs> Hi, Philip. Just wanted you to join us, see if you had any questions or any comments for Mr. Bob. What's the talking stick? Well, for me, the talking stick is um, a device used by indigenous tribes all across the world since time began. And it is a way when, when the elders of the community gathered in the village hall, everybody was there. And by using the ritual of the talking stick, everybody knew that they would have the chance to share their truth, share their issue. So in any gathering, when I pick up a talking stick, my duty is to share what's in my heart and what's concerning me. And the duty of everybody else in that community that is there and present and listening with their heart is to stay silent and just take in the information. And then when I've shared my truth and what concerns me, I put my talking stick down. I put the talking stick down. And somebody else that wants to share will pick up the talking stick and share what's in their heart. There is no compulsion. You don't have to pick up the talking stick. But what it means for me is that in any gathering, it is a totally equitable platform. Because after all, we are all equal and everyone holds a piece of the puzzle. And that's what, that, that for me is the beauty of the talking stick. Next. Mm-hmm. Is the talking stick similar to a mic? What's the shape of it? Whatever you like. I've got loads of talking sticks. My favorite talking stick is, I played the Irish drum, the Baron, and the stick that you beat the drum with was supposed to have been made from the knuckle bone of an Englishman, and that's just Irish humor. Um, and so that's one of my favorite talking sticks. But it can be anything. When I was sailing tall ships, um, a belaying pin, which is a piece of beautiful timber, probably about, I don't know, half a meter long, we used to use a, a belaying pin as a talking stick. So it can be whatever you like. Anyway, all you got to do is Google talking stick, talking stick rituals, and you'll get much better answers than I can provide. But for me, the power of the talking stick is 
I don't care who's sitting around the table, it makes it ensures equality for all that wish to contribute. That's beautiful. Mr. Philip, did you have any other questions? Uh, no, not right now. Get a talking okay. stick. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. Um, I had a question. Were you a premature baby when you were born? How many months was your mom? Well, it's kind of scary. Um, I was about two months premature. I was two pounds at birth, delivered by a cesarean section. And this is in 1952, you know, where... um, Prem babies didn't weren't expected to live, but I did. I'm a survivor, and and one of the downsides of my delivery, if you like, Mum never forgave me for the scar on her belly. It's something she always brought up and beat me over the head with um, in my formative years. And for me, what I mean, my formative years. In our current Western society, I reckon all the damage is done during the first seven years. So, yeah, yeah. But I survived, and I look at it as a positive. Um, Because of my amazing intellect, I reckon that was a result of not getting my brain squashed going through the birth canal. Oh dear! I've got a very impressive. Hmm. <laughs> That's very impressive. I was cracking up, but I had the phone muted. I didn't want to get in trouble. <laughs> no, you can't. The, the sticks down, darling. The sticks down. So it's um, <laughs> you can't get in trouble. You can't get in trouble. <laughs> that was easy. But yes, Next. I mean you're so smart, and you know you you made a great point. You said that. You know, it was, I mean, everything happens for a reason. You went through the cesarean section, and at that age, going through the birth canal, maybe that could have affected your brain, but your IQ is so high. I mean, you were tested with for your IQ. Who tested you? Oh, I test myself every week to see if, if the rum I drink is um, um, damaging my IQ. <laughs> and so far so good well you know one one little insight I've come across is that the only person that takes you seriously is you I have faced my death about a dozen times in my life so I'm not afraid of death because I try to live my life to the fullest do the best that I can in every moment. So if I die right now, you know, death is just a transition. Hey. <laughs> so let me know when you would like me to to start sharing some of the the tools that I discovered on my journey. Yes, that'd be are great. Any, um, uh, please do. Are there any more callers? 
I don't think we have any more at this moment. But um, definitely, if you can share, no, we don't have any more right now. Mm-hmm. Okay, I'm expecting a mate of mine from um, Australia to call in. But Adam, get your ass on the phone. Right, so part two. Um, I'm getting a reputation um, on the global internet as uh, the spiritual mechanic. And that's how, because I spent most of my adult life in engineering. And so I look at my life and my journey has been just going within, listening in my heart and gathering tools that work for me. And again, as I said before, all I am sharing is what works for me. And that is the challenge for everybody, I believe. You've got to find, because you're unique, you've got to find what works for you. And so, the first tool for me is my mind is just a tool that I use when I choose, for I am so much more than my mind. And I thank Shakti Gawain for her work on uh, creative visualization for um, sparking that insight. So, stepping back from me and look at my box of tools, I now treat my mind like I treat my little puppy dog, Charlie, who needs to go out for a pee. But, um, yeah, so I'll, I'll let him out in a minute. <coughs> but, yeah, so I treat my mind like I treat my little dog, Charlie. Now, being a good parent, my mind needs exercise. And so what I say to my mind is, okay, you're getting feisty, you need a run. Hey, mind, go away and do some research into sonoluminescence or whatever and come back and report to me. So off my mind goes wagging its little tail because it's had some attention from the master, which is me. And it comes back and reports to me and then I pat it on the head and say, thank you very much, mind. You've done a great job. Here's a treat. Back in your basket. I'll take you for another run tomorrow. And that was such a powerful realization for me but that I am so much more than my mind. I am. You know, and my... my my intellect is just such a small part of me, which prompted the insight of my mind is always looking for answers, but my heart already knows. And that is where I found all my solutions, because by taking control of my mind and being able to silence my mind, with my silent mind, I could finally hear what my heart and my body was telling me. 
And the second realization was that my body is so much smarter than me because it always knows what it needs. And it's always sending me messages. And if I ignore it, it keeps, you know, it will keep slapping me harder and harder. <coughs> so in 1984, when I had my first panic attack, I'd been ignoring my the messages I was getting from my body for 32 years. And it said, well, I've had enough of this, mate. You're going to get a big slap now. And so at 3 a.m. in November 1984, um, I woke up and my arms and legs were just thrashing around, you know, and it scared the shit out of my wife. And I wasn't too pleased with it either. I thought, what the is going on here? But because I was locked into the programming of the Western society and the Western medical system, you know, I went to the doctor and he gave me some pills, um, Ativan, benzodiazepines. And what they did was disconnect me from my feelings so I could function. I could function as Robert the robot, but I was no longer experiencing life through my feelings. Anyway, those tablets I was on, I was actually on for over two years, and they should have only been two weeks, you know. And hindsight is twenty-twenty vision, and now what I realized was that That big fear, my panic attack, was just a result of my fear. And my fear was how powerful my feelings were. They were so powerful, they were overwhelming, and I couldn't handle them. But looking back, I now know that the power of those feelings that I was having was simply a measure of how powerful... I am as the being of Eden. Which led to another realization that <coughs> the feelings that I swallow today will someday come back and choke me. And so now I just listen to my body and obey. How many people do that? You know, when my before I sort of woke up, if my body was in pain, I'd reach for a pill to take the pain away. But that's just addressing the symptom, not the cause. And the cause was I wasn't living my truth. I was living my programming. And I haven't had a TV or television since 1995 because what is TV full of? programs and it took me 20 years to remove 40 years of programming yeah so please respond and I'll let Charlie out because he needs to be Hi, Charlie Hi. 
right? Um, so we have, again, still uh, Mr. Philip on the line and uh, Ms. Kim. So if you guys have any questions, any comments, please feel free to share. Come on, don't be shy. Well, I will start, if I may. Ooh, this is Dr. Nancy. Mm-hmm. All right, so you made a couple of wonderful points. I'm, I'm very impressed. You said, feelings you swallow today will come back to choke you. Basically, we'll choke you tomorrow if you don't deal with your feelings today. That was very powerful. Yeah, but it was powerful for me when I realized that. <laughs> Very powerful and so true. Um, and also when you make the statement pills, you know, the pills address symptoms but not the cause. And a lot of times we've programmed our minds that when we feel pain or we feel discomfort to go get a pill. But you're trying to you know, teach us that it's much more than just that surface pain is so much deeper than that. And that getting that pill is still just addressing the symptom but not the root cause of the problem. So yeah, precise. that was just amazing. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, what I've re- Mr. realized... Mr. Uh, you can call me Bob, or okay. if you want to, if you want to be formal, you can call me Captain Bob because I am a ship's captain. Um, That's right. But but just Bob's Bob's good enough for me. <coughs> One of the realizations I had was. This whole programming that's been going on in Western society um, that really accelerated from about 1980 onwards, you know. Um, <coughs> there was a French philosopher, Descartes, who said, I think, therefore I am. Now, I reckon that's the biggest travesty for human truth because... Well, that's where most people spend their whole existence. They spend their lives in headspace, not heart space. Now, for me, I experience this life through my senses. I feel the warmth of the sunshine on my bare skin. I hear the sound of the kookaburra bringing in the morning chorus. I smell the sweet tang of the rotting mangoes at the base of the tree. I feel the coolness of the dew-soaked grass beneath my feet. And so for me, I feel, therefore, I am. So I live in a feeling universe, not a thinking universe, because thinking is just a construct of the mind. And for me, thinking is the weapon of mass destruction. And what whatever these programs that have been thrown at us through the television, that's 
they don't want us to realize that they want to keep us locked into this you know hamster wheel of thinking 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 but for me thinking is the language of the mind but feeling feeling is the language of the soul whoa <laughs> that was pretty deep eh Respond, please. That was amazing. I'm here trying to. I'm trying to take some notes. Miss Kim, you you're still with us? Yes, I'm still here. Yes, that thank was you. powerful. <laughs> For that, that was good. Oh, we like that. <laughs> Have you written a book, Bob? Uh-huh. I've written several books, but that was going to be in my yeah. part three, but that's okay. <coughs> yeah, that was good. But as I said, you know, if you look at the bio, um, I, I state that because we're all sovereign, unique, and equal, every, the challenge for everyone is to find out what works for them. And I found what works for me. And... I also said that you don't need to buy any books. <clears throat> but what I'm doing, and why I'm grateful to be again on this platform, is to get my message out there. Because my message is that I am the only expert on my life. And so are you. And that and I, I'm <laughs> world world renowned for asking awkward questions and here's one question that seems to piss a lot of people off is if you are not creating your life who is and the corollary to that is well if you are not creating your life you are victim by definition and for me I am sovereign I am master and commander of this life that I do create and I take full responsibility for it and so in my life which is absolutely amazing if things go a bit purple I go oh whoops instead of trying to blame somebody else I look at this situation <coughs> and I ask myself this question. Okay, but what's going on here? Why did I create that situation in my life, which I didn't particularly like? And what is the lesson I need to learn from that? Because every event that happens in my life holds a lesson and I just need to listen to it. Are you religious? Not at all, but I'm spiritual. For me, all religions are about control. Come on, mate. They even call you the flock. I live my life by Christian values. But uh, for me, God created man, man created religion. When I connect to source, I don't go the long way around. I go straight there. And how I do that is 
within the silence of my heart, I've found a place I call my knowing, and my knowing has no words. And it's in that place of knowing resides my connection to God, creation, nature, source, whatever you want to call it. So, you know, if, if I did have a religion, it would be creation or nature. Next. Okay. Do you have any other questions, Mr. Phillips? Well, I have a comment. Go for it. Please share. I believe that I believe in a higher power from the Narcotics Anonymous thing. I believe that. Sorry, could you repeat that? It was very muffled at this end. I believe in a higher power from Narcotics Anonymous. That's where I learned about the higher power. Yeah, I do. I do. But also, um, I am creator for the kingdom of heaven resides within all of us. And that was the essence for me of the Christ message. I am the way, the truth, the light. That was not his claim. He was just asking everybody to realize that I am the way, the truth, the light. Yes, me. And you, and you, and you, and you. Now, I have found that light within me. And I have, I have created my own garden of Eden, which is, <laughs> well, yeah, funny, as my name's Eden. <laughs> oh, this is beautiful. Thank you so much. Okay, Philip, did you have any other comments, or did that answer your comment? That's it for now. Good on you, Mike. You know, it's so true that in every situation, there's a lesson to be learned. Um, A lot of times we go through things, and we're like, why did I go through this? Why did I go through that? Recently, my brother was dealing with something. Uh, he, He went through something. And I remember just reminding him, like, hey, you know what? That won't happen to you again. You know, if if you experience fraud, if you experience certain situations, it makes you just wiser on how to better deal with it, co-signing for people and getting burned. You're like, okay, you know what? I won't do that again. So out of every situation, we have to really sit down and look. At, like you said, what could we have done differently and how could we come out better at the other end next time? Yeah. Well, the, the next tool I would like to talk about is um, how can I put it? Becoming the observer of me in my own life. And what does that mean? For me, and this is probably about 1995, after I'd sort of done a lot of work with John Bradshaw, and, I, and again with Shakti Gawain, created visualization. I just imagined that I was a webcam 
it will be a drone nowadays. Well, I was a webcam about two meters above my head, sliding back, looking down at me <coughs> and observing me in my, as I go through my, my daily life. And, and it gave me a, a really interesting perspective because I was looking at me and oh, what did you do that look stupid for me? <laughs> but it, it also gave me that remote perspective that I noticed and I call this my sense of noticing I noticed there were so many times in my life when I was whistling and so my, the observer me said you're whistling you, you're in the zone so what are you doing that brings you into the zone and at that time I was tinkering with an old engine you know, and I was totally blissed out and so with this sense of noticing I just noticed other activities in my life that brought me into the zone of being in the moment of being in the now and um, riding my um, lawnmower that brings me into the zone that's like I call it my mower meditation um, playing with my dog Charlie that brings me into the zone and so all I did was using my sense of noticing I just told myself right just do more of that do more of all of this and so now you know I spend my days in um, eyes open meditation because I'm in the zone I'm in the zone and I'm in the zone as long as I choose to be there are times when I have to step out of heart space and get into head space to, to deal with all this bloody bullshit that's going on but and that's why I love having a dog I would recommend anybody having a dog because if my, you know, if, I, if my life gets complicated, I just look at my dog and he's lying on the grass, rolling on his back, scratching his back. And my dog Charlie, he spends his whole life in the moment. So he's my best mate, my first mate, but he's also my mentor. <coughs> because I'm here as a spiritual being, having a physical experience of this life. And how I experience this life is my choice. So, what I radiate, I create. So I consciously choose to radiate joy. And then guess what comes back? Joy. And in 2005, when I became a ship's captain, the first time I took a ship out was, oh bugger, Bob, the buck stops with you. You are totally responsible to the lives of all these people on this vessel. You're responsible for the safety of the vessel. You're even responsible for the vibe on the boat. And that was a big eye-opener for me. But it's also a big lesson 
So I took the ideology of being master and commander and applied it to my whole life. So now, and since then, I am master and commander of this life that I do create. And I take full responsibility for it. Which prompted the question, well, okay, if I'm master of my life, what is my life purpose? So I set my life purpose to be to simply find my own truth. So I started questioning everything. And how do I know what is my own truth? Whatever resonates with my heart. So that's how I find what, and again, going back to the heart, heart space. And then the second question I ask myself is, as a spiritual being having a physical experience, how do I wish to experience this life? So I set my own conscious life intention, which is, <coughs> sorry, which is, I am here to have a gentle, joyful, loving, healthy, and abundant life. So that I am here to have It's my intention, but it's also my address to the universe to tell the universe where to deliver what follows. So since I put that conscious life intention in place in about 2005, I am here to have a gentle, joyful, loving, healthy and abundant life. That is precisely how my life is unfolding. It's like I don't have to do any work. You know, I'm just kicking back and letting the angels do all the hard work, letting the universe do all the hard work. But it's only because I reclaimed my belief in me, which was beaten out of me in those first uh, seven years. So please talk amongst yourself for two or three minutes. I've got some personal stuff to do. That was really great. Um, Philip, did you get what did you get from that? Um, that he had to reclaim his life from the abuse hmm. that he suffered for the first seven years of his life. Nice. And um. What about the part of him being a captain? How he used that to kind of put it together with life. Being a well, captain of a his, ship and then being a captain of his life. What did you get from that? Well, I remember he said that he felt his responsibility to default to the place on a ship. He's a captain. So serving others that way um, translated into that. He was able to be the captain of his life. That was a good. That was a good point too. You know, you don't think of it that way. You're driving a ship, and you're responsible for the life of all the people in there, 
and you're responsible to keep everybody safe. And if anything happens, you have to answer. Right? And pretty much, that's how it should be for your life. You take accountability, you take responsibility, and you really stop taking, putting the blame on other people. And you have to answer for your own life. What's your thought about that, Miss Kim? Yeah, I think great Sorry. to see men come on. So this, I'm perfect timing, Bob. <laughs> I, I, it's so it's great to see somebody who is not afraid, a man especially. We have so many women on all the time, too, and we have men, but it's not as common to hear a man talk so much about their healing and how you went through that process and how you came out on the other side. And I was just wondering, has your wife been instrumental at all in your healing, or how has that relationship been? Well, because I was living in the Matrix, I was living the, ma- the magazine life. Um, when I got married in about 76, 77, it, I was just fulfilling my programming. You know, I just left the Merchant Navy. I was an engineering officer on the cruise liners. And um, as a musician, I love folk music, and I saw this band, this like bush dance band, with a great fiddler, who became my father-in-law, because he introduced me to his daughter, and and I had no idea what love was, you know. This was just. This was just. It was comfortable. It was expected, but I met his daughter Pam, who had a a five-year-old daughter. So we got together, and it was comfortable. It was respectful, Um, but it was shallow. And so we got married. And again, I'm living in the Matrix, living the magazine life, and we were both working so hard. Um, within a very few short years, um, I was working for SO in research, and my my intellect was having a ball. And Pam was working like a Trojan, um, and she was making bespoke curtains for people like the Queen's Equerry. And yeah, so. You know, in a very short period of time, we had a two-story detached house, um, holidays in France. Uh, My son was born after about five years of marriage, Jamie. And, you know, looking at the magazine life, we ticked all the boxes. But we we were never real. We never argued. We were always polite. And... If Pam did something that 
upset me. I'd learned from the mum that, you know, you don't, you don't say anything, you swallow it. So he spent 13 years being respectful, well, 12 years being respectful, but not sharing our, what was in our hearts, because neither of us knew how to do that. In 84, when I had my first panic attack, and got my behavior modified by all these psychotropic, psychotic, or what, you know, antidepressants, uh, Pam and the family had to endure five years of me being not me. Every antidepressant I ever took turned me into another person that I did not like. But in 1989, we all emigrated to Australia. Well, I was the driving force. And the idea was, like, we'd amassed enough capital in the UK, sell our house, you know, and we could, we still had a mortgage on it, and come to Australia and buy a house outright so we know no more mortgage and spend all day on the beach and blah, 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 blah. But during that last year, 88, 89, I noticed that we'd started to snap at each other, you know, because we weren't expressing our truth and our feelings in the moment. And so, by moving to Australia, we weren't going for a new start, we were just doing a geographical. We were taking all our shit with us. So we landed in Australia in November 89, uh, January 90. Pam and I sat down and we had this discussion and thankfully we both realised that what we were living was a, wasn't our own truth. And that was a watershed moment where I said to Pam, I know in my heart of hearts that this is the where, where I need to be, which is why I don't own a pair of shoes. I walk this land barefoot. This is my heartland. This is my homeland. So Pam took the kids and went back to the UK, and the deal was that this is all that we created together, you know, this big pile of money. You take what you want and go. And so they did. And going back to that house in Safety Bay the day after they left, I was just gutted. I was just heartbroken. You know? And I cried for months and months. But I knew in my heart of hearts it was the right thing to do because we'd never shared our truth because neither of us knew what our truth was. Luckily, I had some support from my friends um, in the folk music scene in Perth, Western Australia. And they were like a rock. And so I moved, I moved on. And that may sound heartless, you know, because, you know, moving away from my wife who... I was supposed to love, but I didn't know what love was. And my stepdaughter, Emma, and my son, Jamie. Now, how'd you do that? How'd you reconcile that? But all of those events were just products of living an untrue life. 
And it's funny that my dad, when I was six years old, he had a nervous breakdown. He abandoned me. He um, he went and committed himself to a mental institution, um, Fairmont Hospital in Wallingford in the UK. And, uh, and I thought, well, hey, shit, you know. I've just done the same to Jamie. And so that's another reason that my, like my heart broke. But since then, um, Pam went back to the UK, hooked up with her sister, with the funds that she had. She uh, bought a bed and breakfast place in the west of England. So she had a house that was also an income and she got back into a, a very well paid, bespoke, hand-sewn um, curtains and stuff. And she's done a great job. And then for me, I found that in my previous life, I was a, an elder in the Northern Territory in Australia, and so, and that's why I, you know, I, I know that this is my heartland, and that's why I do not own a pair of shoes, because I have a soul-based, energetic connection to this land, the, so, the Great Southern Land. Terra Australis. And again, you know, that's another hard thing I had to do, but I knew, I knew that what Pam and I were doing were just being a lie. And so the best thing that we could do, because we started snapping at each other before we started openly berating each other and creating an environment of hate and that is no space to raise children in and so yeah onward and upward onward and upward I need to get some cleaning thank you for sharing that no mm-hmm. but it's true I think that it's really common with survivors because like you said we don't even know how to have a relationship and um, and it was so big of both of you to recognize that and then to move, you know, move forward still being able to talk and I, I suppose are you able to see your, your son at times and have a relationship with him well, oh, the first few years, um, there was some dialogue between me in Australia and them in the UK, but then it sort of faded away, and it takes two to tango. I, I always let them know where I was and how I could be contacted, but then Jamie, the sneaky little bugger, he came out to the Whitsunday Islands with his girlfriend and about 2005 oh god what a handsome guy he is you know and he's as sharp as a tack he's um he's now a senior engineer with British Aerospace um 
So I know where he got his intellect from. <laughs> but, he, he got his, but he got his looks from his mum. Yeah, and so he turned up at my door and I took him out around the islands, the Whitsunday Islands, and that's really the last contact I've had with him. Um, and, you know, as I said, it takes two to tango. Yeah. I'm just pleased to to pop into his life whenever I can find what he's up to. He's he's forging ahead. He's he's doing great, and um, yeah, I'm very proud of him, and I'm proud of Pam for doing a very a, a beautiful job. Because for me, um, to minimise the impact of wounding the child. A child needs both a mum and a dad. I don't care what people say. You know, they need the the male and the female guidance to be present all the time for the the growing child. One of the things that I I grieve the most is the loss of innocence you know I was born into this world as a magical innocent being but that innocence beaten out of me and part of my journey now is to reclaim that innocence because for me innocence is my birthright Amen. What is the magazine like? I know you mentioned that you said you lived that. I'm just curious, what is the magazine matrix like? Well, the magazine life is whatever you get through mainstream media. And one of the joys of my synchronistic life was in 1995 when I quit my job in automotive research and I bought a combi and set off around Australia as a folk singer and I went around eight times over ten years when I set my combi up Volkswagen combi love and peace match <coughs> there was no room for a TV a television but do not think that I am uninformed because I'm all over the internet but I do my own research I am not spoon-fed by what comes through that screen. And and it's funny, and I'm not knocking, you know, America. Uh, we're, all, we're all cousins and brothers and sisters in this. But the, the, informa- the data that I've seen is that the average American views the TV for about eight hours a day. Now what, the TV, the television, what do they run? They run programs. That is their job. They are programming you. And so one of the best things they ever did was in 1995, get rid of the program. And the other thing 
that strikes me is that Americans account for about 5% of the world's population and and you can do your own research you know they consume about 90% of the world's pharmaceuticals yeah and let that sink in and most of those pharmaceuticals are antidepressants and what do antidepressants do? Detach anyone from their feelings because that's what the system wants they don't want us to realize that where the true seat of our power lies is in our feelings feelings are healings thinking is the weapon of mass distraction so you know good luck with that but I see we're at um, about 15 minutes to go so I'd, um, I'd just like to change tack for a while is it okay did you eventually you sorry Philip carry on did you eventually learn how to share what was on your heart that's all I do. I live in heart space, not in head space, mate. I've been doing that since How did you learn how to do that? I followed my heart. And if you want to know more, check out my YouTube channel, Bob Eden, Selling in Paradise. I've got loads of videos on there about that. But now I'd um, like to call a halt to this uh, particular dialogue and... Um, start a new theme if that's okay with my beautiful host hostesses <laughs> yes you may yeah, please leave us okay I follow no one and I've never had a boss well except for mum but you know I am on a mission to eradicate suicide every 40 seconds somebody dies because of depression and they do not have to and I'm living proof of that but and that's why I love NASCAR but the point I want to make and the seed I want to sow here is that the people that are keeping NASCAR alive well we're knocking on a bit you know and I was having the same conversation with Bill the other day on the Zoom meetings, which more people need to attend. Now, if we as a collective want NASCA to survive and thrive into the future, we need more younger people to step up to the plate and take over the running and the management of this beautiful idea that is NASCAR. And I, I'm not going to drive it because I've got my own mission, you know, this is 
I'm a, an ambassador for NASCAR, but I'm an ambassador for many other things that are about uh, personal liberation and freedom. So my shout-out is to anybody that's listening to this, if you want to keep NASCAR going, then step up to the plate and see how you can contribute your skills, knowledge, and ability to ensure that this goes on. Because I don't know how how much longer I've got on this planet. And that doesn't worry me. Or Bill, you know. (laughs) That was the essence of our discussion. But if all of you people that are listening want to keep this this beautiful safe haven of support and recovery going, then step up, put your hand up, and show us what you can do. And, in a shameless moment of uh, self-promotion, if what I've shared resonates with you, then just go to the NASCAR page, Click on Bob Eden and you'll get to my Facebook page and send me a friend request. Because, and again going back to keep it simple, sovereign. I believe that just by sharing our stories, we help to heal each other because we are all equal and everyone holds a piece of the puzzle so I'm asking you please share me your piece of the puzzle I have just shared you my piece of the puzzle whoa go for it girls really we have really enjoyed having you Bob, you've really been just shedding light. It has been a very enlightening hour and a half. Um, I don't know, Philip, did you have any comments about what was just said by Bob? Um, I don't think so. Not right now. Questions. Not right now? No, thank you. All right. Ms. Kim? Thank you, Dr. Vance. Um, Bob, I, I love that you are advocating for NASCA. I think that that's an awesome, an awesome thing. And I think we should probably be doing that a little bit more often because I do know how hard the work and So thank you for bringing that up, that we do need more people to help us out. And, um, you know, whenever I try and give Bill all the credit, he's like, no, this is our nonprofit. It's not my nonprofit. And um, I keep telling but you're the one that did this. I mean, you started this. But I do know that he helped. And I was so glad when he finally opened it up and let other people come on, um, you know, to host, too, because I know that he did that for so long. And, um, and I just love Bill, so... Again, thank you for advocating for him and NASCA. And I think it is an amazing organization and has done a lot of a lot for a lot of people. And I'm really well, honored I'm re- to be a part of it. 
I'm renowned globally for asking the difficult questions, you know, because I was born without a filter between my brain and my gob. But anybody that's involved in NASCAR right now, I'll say this to you. If Bill died tomorrow, what the hell are you going to do? Hey? A lot of people with this organization now. Yeah, but there's nobody actually, or very few, that are keeping the wheels turning. Yeah. Yeah. But there's only love here, and I just thank you so much for another opportunity for getting my message out there. I'm just a simple bloke, and if I can find my way from trauma and despair to contentment, then anybody can. And if anybody wants to know, they now have the information of um, how to contact me, and I would love to set up a, a, a like a weekly Zoom thing um, to... Yeah, to share what I've learned and maybe provide a little bit of guidance to get out of living a fear-based life into living a life as master and commander. (laughs) Thanks, ladies been awesome let's do it again yes thank you let's do it again how can people find you yes can you share your um the best way that people can find you i know you said you have a youtube page just in case anybody missed that can you just let us know ways that people can find your work yeah if you go to the nasca page and click on my name, Bobby, and that'll take me to my Facebook page. Or you can do a Google search on the gift of depression, Bob Eden, and that will bring up all the books and videos. And you can also go to YouTube and look up my channel, Bob Eden. Um, that's it. I'm out there. I'm everywhere. And I... I am at 12.25 on Tuesday afternoon, and I am in your future. Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> Thank you for all that you do to help others who are currently going through, their, through the process of depression. It's a very difficult thing to talk about. I love the fact that you, you know, you bring this light to the situation and, and you let people feel safe and comfortable talking about it. You're opening up a safe space. And just well, thank dar- you so much for everything that you're doing. Well, well, darling, why are we here? And the answer is simple. We are simply here to lift each other. End of story. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. 
the end. <laughs> Philip, did you have any other comments before we go? Um, no, I don't. Okay, thank you. Yes, thank you, Bob. We really appreciate having you tonight. And uh, we hope to have you come back soon. You know where to find me. <laughs> we have all your information. <laughs> it's been a pleasure, oh. absolute pleasure. Magic. Ms. Kim, Ms. Kim do you want to uh, close by? Thank you, Bob, for, for your time. We can also find Bob on Facebook. I've already done that. So, um, Send him a, a message and just tell him what a great job he's doing. Thank you, Bob. I look forward to getting to know you more just on Facebook. Well, thank you for helping me get my message out there that we are, we are all magnificent. It's just that some people have a short-term memory problem. <laughs> 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 That's me. Absolutely. We hope you back. Well, thank you for joining us, and we just hope you have a wonderful uh, night. What time is it over there, real quick? Um, it's twelve twenty-five in the afternoon on Tuesday, and oh. um, I do not operate on hope. I create my life. But thank you for your oh, kind words. You're welcome. Well, thank you for joining us and hope to have you soon. Have a good night. Bye for now. Good night. Good night. Don't